Hello and welcome to Indie Filmopolis, a podcast dedicated to indie film. I'm Philip Hugh, a filmmaker and indie film enthusiast, and today I'm joined once more by Paul Barrow to discuss indie films based on and inspired by comic books and superheroes. We're going to talk about 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, James Gunn's Super, his brother and cousin's Brightburn, Ghost World, and some great superhero shorts. We'll also be talking more about the making of my own low-budget feature, Homeless Enemy, but very quickly, before all of that, I just want to give a quick but massive shout out to our long-suffering but very patient Indiegogo followers. Thanks for sticking around, and if you found this podcast by other means, thanks for joining us. But before we dive into everything, Paul, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm warm, but good. Warm, yes, it's a very warm day in England. Thanks for coming back. No problem. With all these podcasts we've been going through, talking about the different stages of making a West Enemy, and... We've talked about the conception, the pre-production, the filming, the trolls and tribulations of filming, screening the film for feedback. But this episode, because Paul's a writer, we thought we'd sort of backtrack a bit in the process and talk about the writing process, the, yeah. the inspiration, and at the moment, what are you writing? I'm still working on the radio play, uh, but um, it's taken a, a longer time than I, than I had anticipated. There's a short story I'm working on at the moment, and it's about a guy who collects action figures mm-hmm. like he has them in they're never taken at the box they're um, they're kind of sealed yeah but they like like in toy story they come to life mm-hmm. but they're like action man and um that kind of thing yeah. they're like big like he-man they're mm-hmm. like big bulky figures hero types but what they're actually doing is protecting him from a supernatural entity right that entity's home uh-huh. so it's more like you know who's opened this figure and then he slowly comes to realize like oh that's what's happening right. it's it's very strange but it's more because it's, it's only like about five thousand words yeah it's more about like oh here's why i started clicking on figures mm-hmm. and then then you realize oh the reason these things are getting broken and you know can't keep playing the kids is <laughs> is weird and so is it um, based on anybody that character it's based on me <laughs> <laughs> because like we're members of several um facebook collecting groups yeah, and some people are very very protective <clears throat> of. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not that kind of um, protective. But the the genesis of it was, you know, why do people become attached to yeah. these to these um, properties? Mm-hmm. Like, why do people go? Oh, I've got to clip this, and I've got to get every single one of them. So, I, uh, to, to start off, I'm I'm going to be calling back to my own my own fandom of like when I first became a mega fan of something. Mm-hmm. I'll tell that story, but it won't be. Star Wars, in my case, it will be something I create for yeah. this, and then so, and that's when that's when it kind of started. The mania started, and I, I had to have everything. But yeah, that's one. That's a short story I'm kind of working on when I'm not banging my head against the script. Cool. And so we haven't worked on it for a while. I think we mentioned it last time. We, we, we hinted at it. Working on another script. So how does collaboration in script writing differ from when you're writing on your own? Like I really enjoy coming up with ideas and, and worlds and things. Mm-hmm. And characters. When it's the say the two of us, mm-hmm. we're of similar but different mindsets a lot Which of the time. Is perfect, um, because you know there overlap, are... and then there's enough difference. Like with that particular one, it was like an idea that I had, but I knew that I wouldn't be able to. Just my sensibilities on their own wouldn't be able to deliver what I wanted it to be. So it's always in that case good to have someone with. He might, have to comp- he might have to compliment me here, so you different know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just to make it work, I guess when you enter like a doing something as a collaboration, you can't be too precious about stuff. And no. You have to be open to 
other ideas but that was kind of the um the exciting part and the joy of doing that one for me because it was like filling in the gaps and yeah and, and working out the bits that i wouldn't have been able to do on my own and it's very much come down to the, the very tiny tiny gaps now yeah. at the moment where it's just like oh okay we need to fill that bit in so mm. where does that go and i find that really interesting i mean um i i used to do it with 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 my friends just as an exercise just tell them about what i was writing yeah and have them go what about this 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 and this and half the time you'd be like that's actually good mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna take that or an element of that and then half the time you'd be like okay no <laughs> but all right <laughs> what is it they say to um if you steal from one person it's plagiarism if yeah. you steal from a hundred it's research yeah and like yeah a lot of my stuff is oh this this thing came from this mm -hmm. but hopefully please um I'll have put my own spin it enough where people can't recognise it. If they do recognise it, they don't mind. There are no original ideas anymore. Everything comes from something. So yeah, in terms of actually committing ideas to paper and stuff, I mean, it's one thing coming up with um with an idea. Yeah. And then getting it on paper. I've, the thing I like about writing, the same with editing as well, and that's kind of why I don't like the middle part of filmmaking, the, the actual filming so much. <laughs> you don't like the filming of filmmaking? <laughs> okay. It's because um, when you're on set and everything's there, everything has to work, or everything has to come together that day. If you're writing, if it's not going your way, you can just leave it and you can come back to it. Yeah. I don't remember having too much of a problem writing Omar Send Me, because any time it was a problem, I'd just leave it and then come, come back, back to it. The best ideas sometimes come when you're not actually sat in front of a keyboard right yeah i constantly find that so i i never sit down with a blank page never sit down wondering what to write i always sit down knowing what initially i want to put on the page and then obviously out of that comes a lot of different ideas that you weren't expecting they just happen they germinate from that as you're going through it i kind of felt like i rewrote almost enemy a lot in a way like it was always the same three acts in terms of what happens in basic terms, it's always the same, but that kind of labouring process of going through and sort of putting more twists and turns in, it, in the road was kind of invaluable. This is one of the problems why it, filming took much longer. When I first gave it to Mike, it was 70 pages, and we were rehearsing it, and I was adding more stuff in, but I didn't add in any more filming days. Oh dear. <laughs> um, so I think when we went to start filming, it was 110 pages. So that's why we ended up doing 20 days instead of um, 10. Everyone can have an idea. Not everyone can turn it into a story. And I think you're very good at, at turning ideas. I, I, I do it because I'm not saying it's easy for you. I'm saying it seems easy. With me, it's kind of, I have this thing at the beginning and I have this thing at the end and I have this thing right at the end and I have this thing before the beginning I wrote. And then you kind of like, I've got no middle. <laughs> and then you've got to kind of flesh that out. Yeah. Um, the second acts are always really difficult. Yeah. You know, a film probably lives or dies on its second act. Because that's where your development comes in. Yeah. If you have a good idea, mm -hmm. your first act and your third act are usually what you come up with. Absolutely. You come up with your premise mm -hmm. and you come up with your resolution. And then your middle is just... Um, how you get there. How do you get there? What do you think of the film The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? Never seen it. Oh, okay. Interesting. I always um, felt that way about The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. In that the first act's really good, the third act's really good. But the second act literally could have been I am, anything i imagine it's quite meandering it, it could be anything you like you could take out that second act and you could replace it with dozens and dozens of different second acts and you'd still be able to get from act one to act three yeah 
because they just don't relate it in any way. But I suppose that's kind of the problem with like a person that ages in reverse. The interesting bits are the beginning and the yeah. end. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't really tell so, in the middle. The problem is it's like a three-hour film. It's ridiculously long. Really? I, yeah. I don't know. That's why I didn't watch it. It might not be that. Maybe two and a half hours. It felt longer than it should have been. Anyway, do you have any writing tips? Write. That is it. And we briefly touched on it before. I don't think writing is necessarily you sat down in front of a keyboard. No, it's... Just getting that idea, formulating that idea, working that idea through, and having something to work with, that's writing. You might not yeah. you not even open your laptop, you might not even turn on your computer, but you can do a whole day's kind of writing just purely by figuring stuff out. Depends what you're having trouble with. If you're having trouble with the plot, read, mm-hmm. watch, play. Video, video games are getting better with plots. Yeah. Um, you know, read a good book, read a bad book, watch movies, and kind of immerse yourself in enough narrative that you go, okay, okay, I see what pe- people do this kind of thing. If you're having trouble with um, characters, mm-hmm. go to a train station or a park and just sit there and watch people. You'll probably know interesting characters without realising it. Yeah. That's a good point, actually. While I was making one minute... I worked at a mental health clinic. They had a filing cabinet full of lost pieces of paper and information yeah. from people's files. And so I was in this filing room for four weeks, going through this filing cabinet. Sounds like a joyful experience. Finding these pieces of paper, finding their files, putting them back together. And as part of doing that, you had to kind of read some of their notes yeah, you or have whatever. To. So it was actually, it was far from a really boring job. It was so interesting because you were reading all these people with severe mental health issues, which wasn't, you know, it was fascinating in a way. But, you know, you wasn't making fun of them or making light of what they were going through, but you were reading these things. And it's a totally alarming. different point of view for you um, to... And one of, the, one of the patients there suffered uh, from a severe paranoia that if he stepped out of his front door, he would slip off the edge of the world because he couldn't conceive oh. gravity. And this is part of Homeworth's enemy. <laughs> so the guy in his notes described it as if you put a tennis ball on top of the football, the tennis ball stops on top. If you put the tennis ball on the side, the tennis ball falls off. And he was... Convinced how, on the side. How am I not sliding off the edge of the world? That was just kind of in my head for ages. And when I was writing Homeworth's enemy, I was trying to conceive of why would Andy not want to go out? Or why was he stuck inside? And um, that popped into your head. And that popped into my head. I was like, well, I've never seen that before. Never heard anyone talk about that before. That seems original and kind of a bit crazy. And it, and it doesn't... Make, you don't just go agoraphobia. Yeah. He has a mm-hmm. reason in his own mind, mm-hmm. no matter how outlandish or... If you can kind of think a bit further outside the box and, like you say, not just go, oh, yeah, he can't go outside because he's got agoraphobia. You know, all your characters are going to have some kind of vices or barriers or whatever. And if you if you can think of the least cliche option, and you the thing what I'm trying to get at is you'll probably know that in your head. You will have met these people before and just maybe not thought at the time how this this scenario, this character, yeah. delve deep into uh, every writer your memory it. bank. Every writer ever. So one of the most overused pieces of writing advice that I hear is write what you know. And I think people take that way too literally. And yep. I've seen way too many indie films that sort of... Essentially what I think happened is in the early 90s, Tarantino came out and he made 
Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, and then there was this glut of imitators. Yeah. And people were just making Tarantino-esque movies, not based on anything other than wild fantasies. And so you get movies like Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, and all sorts of really bad crime and gangster movies. You ended up with all these poor imitations, and then this advice was circulating around, write what you know. And then what happened after that, after the glut of bad crime dramas, was this glut of self-indulgent, preppy high school movies of kids taking drugs and family, like suburban families. Yeah, like, uh... It was all made by middle-class American guys in their 20s, and it was all based on their lives, taking drugs in high school, and they were all the same. And there were so many of these movies, and you'd see the same actors virtually playing the same roles, and it was, I guess, based off the fact that people were writing what they knew. I don't think you should take it that literally, write what you know, write your life story, write what you know, you can do research. Yeah. Like, you know, if you want to write about the Second World War, you don't have to have lived through the Second World War, but don't make some crazy stuff up. If you want to write a crime drama, that's absolutely fine, but don't, like, make too many assumptions about what, you know, a life of crime is like. Do some research yeah. about it. And then once you when know, <laughs> once you know, then you can make your own um, scenarios and stories and plots and characters. And that's writing what you know, because you know the world of crime. Yeah, because you don't have to have lived it. it. Research I, is fun. Really fun. Research is, like, whenever I hear the word research, or when, well, not me, because I don't do it this way, but mm. when a lot of people hear the word research, they immediately think, I've got to go to a library. I've yeah. got to... Well, maybe, but I mean, but like, if you know... If you but like, they imagine themselves, you know, with the dusty old tone. Yeah. It's not like that at all. No. Find something you like. Mm. And indulge it, and just learn about it or watch as many documentaries read as many books and just and immerse I, yourself and I know people it. that refuse to do that take what you like from it mm -hmm. and then put a spin on it if you write scripts and you're interested in script writing hit us up let us know what, what your process is like if you've had any kind of troubles or success or if you've got um, a screenplay you can't get off the ground let us know if you yep. want us to read it getting feedback is a really good thing to do actually Either, it doesn't have to be from people who write no just anybody and you don't have to take their advice and certainly don't take their criticisms personally but if they do make valid uh, constructive criticism or points the thing that I always love on. about feedback is ooh I never thought of that mm -hmm. or oh I see that thing that I thought I expressed really clearly here yeah. maybe I didn't maybe mm -hmm. I need to put it further back in the script yeah. any feedback is usually constructive if, as long as it's not someone who just goes this sucks in which case you don't want their feedback because they're not really giving you feedback. Awesome. So, yep, if we manage to uh, spark a bit of interest in you with Unwist Enemy, check us out on Twitter, Unwist Enemy UK. <laughs> I think <laughs> it is. I'm sure you'll find it, Unwist Enemy. <laughs> and also we've got a Facebook page, Unwist Enemy Movie. And there's a very outdated website, unwistenemymovie.com. There's a bunch of pictures and posters on there, a bit more info. So... With a lot of the podcasts that we've been doing, there's been a, a loose or a main theme to them. And to try and engage Paul a bit more, because he's not the bi world's biggest fan of indie film, which is fine. <laughs> you say that now, it's not what I get most days, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> now, come on, I, I, I like all kinds of movies. But you do like superhero movies, you do yeah. like comic book movies and comic book adaptations. I thought, try and find any... Uh, indie or low budget 
comic book inspired comic book adaptations or or superhero inspired or superhero adaptation movies and to be honest we kind of struggled yeah it's it, it was a choice it was hard but we've got a few and the main one which should not long come out that uh, we're going to start talking about is Brightburn it's made for a modest seven million dollars produced by James Gunn who's known to the masses as the director of Guardians of the Galaxy to the likes of me he's known for he's not like Slither Super and Slither see see I, d- I don't just watch <laughs> it was written by his brother Brian and his cousin Mark and it's the second film directed by David Yarovoski let's go with that because I'm not trying Yarovoski uh, it stars Elizabeth Banks and David Denman as the parents of preteen Brendan Breyer, who is essentially evil Superman. The film follows Brendan's evil awakening as his superpowers consume him and he uses them to wreak havoc and revenge on the small rural community that he lives in. The entire premise of the film is basically what would happen if Superman grew up to be evil. Paul, what did you think? I really didn't like this film because when you explain that premise, Oh, what yeah. would happen if, if Superman grew up to be evil? Mm-hmm. That's a cool idea. It's been ex- yeah. done many times in mm-hmm. comics. But the way they do it in this movie is the dullest way you could <laughs> probably do it. I don't, like, it's a, I don't think it's a bad film. Yeah. I feel that it's wasted potential. Definitely. It's an effective scare because it is a horror movie mm-hmm. at, at certain points. But the whole thing to me reminds me of a comic book called Superman Red Sun, which mm-hmm. I think was by Mark Miller. Don't quote me on that. And that story explores what would happen if instead of landing in Smallville, Kansas, Middle America, he landed in Russia during the Cold War. And he didn't become the Man of Steel, he became the Man of Iron. Mm-hmm. And he stood for like the Warsaw Pact and all yeah. that. And, and he, he basically became the ultimate deterrent between the US and Russia. And so it's it's very much a a nature versus nurture sto- yeah. story. And Brightburn <coughs> takes the takes it and goes, no, it's all nature. Absolutely. It, that's my biggest it, kind of disappointment with it. To be honest, that's where I kind of checked out the film. I was mm-hmm. I was pretty invested because uh, I th- I thought what a brilliant idea. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a certain plot point I don't know if he wants to go into it or we can do I mean there's no kind of like trigger point for him like you said it's not a case of nature versus nurture he didn't end up with like an abusive family or anything like that or which would have been fascinating yeah. yeah essentially he had your typical all-american mom and dad yeah and they've kept the craft that he landed in and then much like Superman's parents yeah. do and then I don't know. It starts coming. <laughs> yeah, it basically, basically, it calls to him basically, and and then, like I said in the intro, he has like a an evil awakening, and then he's just evil. Yeah, um, and from that point on, the film lost me because mm-hmm. it's a slasher movie, and people, are like, but it's a slasher movie with a super villain, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but Michael Myers, you know, gets stabbed and shot and everything else. He always comes back. It's pretty, it's yeah. pretty supernatural. Like, there's not much difference apart from the fact this guy can fly and has heat vision and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the, with the with the way it's been expressed in in comic books, I'll, I'll give you another another example of evil Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a if you play video games, you've heard of the Injustice games, yeah. where the Joker tricks Superman into killing Lois Lane, uh, who's carrying his baby, 
So Superman goes, oh, forget this. Murders the Joker and just decides, no crime anymore, because if you commit a crime, I will kill you. <laughs> and basically Batman goes, well, that's not right. Mm-hmm. And they basically have a big split. And half the heroes go, Superman are like, we can't, we, we're just going to turn into a totalitarian state. And Batman, obviously, is Batman, and they're kind of the rebellion. But that's a more interesting take on an evil Superman, because you've taken a symbol of truth, justice in the American way, shall we say, mm-hmm. and turned him evil, rather than, oh, he's evil because he so was always going to be evil. And, <laughs> and it's, got some really, um, it's got some really effective jump scares and things. Yeah, well, don't get me started on jump scares. Jump scares are the worst. Yeah, they they, they still suck because they're cheap. cheap and tacky. But it, what, so yeah, there was like loads of ways that they could have gone about it. Like I said, they could have had like a sort of a an abusive family or been like severely bullied at school, and sort of instead of doing the American high school shoot up. Yeah, it's, it, as it is, it's just like. Uh, yeah, he was always going to turn out that way because that's what he is. I don't know. Is there anything good about it? For seven mil, for seven million, it's bloody good. Oh, the way it looks and like stuff. Production values, it's great. Yeah, I tell you the one. The thing acting that, isn't bad at all. It's just. Well, that's gonna say. Like, I don't normally like Elizabeth Banks, but I thought she was great in this. Really, really good. I don't think it's. I do not think it's bad. I just didn't like it because it throws away mm-hmm. the potential, and it tries to build a world on top of it. Well, I mean. It, it all starts with the script, doesn't it? If the script isn't right, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I really, really wanted to like this film, but it just it doesn't connect. It doesn't have the right elements, the right triggers, the right... There's no um, there's no tragedy. No. And there's there is... no kind of doubt in his mind either. There's no kind of point, point where like... Oh, I shouldn't do this There's because... no fork in the road. There's no like, oh, okay, he could have actually gone this way. Yeah. Or this way, there, there's no. Alternative. It would have been. It would have been far more interesting if he'd had some internal struggle. Yeah. So rate... I feel like I've just savaged Brightburn film, but. Well, here we go. As always, we rate them out of Kahuna Burgers. Is that a five? Yeah. Yeah, five. I'd give it two. I'd give it three because the production values are great. There's some good performances in there, but beyond that, there's not much. Yeah, that's why. That's why it's got my two. <laughs> I'm going to be kind and give it a three. I'm not going to be kind because because I think there's something. I think as much as you were looking forward to this, yeah. I was. There's, I was really looking forward to this. There's film. something there. There's something there. Um, I think that's and, what upsets me most. And they've hinted at a sequel, so hopefully, hopefully they'll be able to bring something more to the table in any subsequent films. So from Brightburn, then produced by James Gunn and. Like we said, written by his uh, cousin and brother. Jump to 2010 Super, written and directed by James Gunn. And there is a there is a connection between these two movies. At the end of Brightburn, we see the character, the main character from Super. The Crimson Bolt. The Crimson Bolt. So Super from 2010, with a budget of just two and a half million. Uh, it starred Rain Wilson. I'm surprised it hasn't broken out into films, given that Steve Carell and John Krasinski have done quite alright for themselves but Rain Wilson seems to have got lost along the way but this was one of his only leading roles and yeah. uh, also stars Ellen Page, Liv Tyler, Kevin Bacon and as always with a uh, James Gunn film Michael Rucker. So Rain Wilson stars as a man whose wife played by Liv Tyler falls under the influence of a drug dealer played by Kevin Bacon and he transforms himself into a superhero called the Crimson Bolt. He has zero superpowers, but he wants to be a superhero. Along the way, he acquires a sidekick, played by Ellen Page, and she's called 
what you called? Bolty. Bolty. I really, really like this one. What do you think of it? I enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. at certain points you feel like you shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> it's a dark comedy, really. Yeah. It's... Uh, with a guy with a clear mental illness. Yeah. He believes that the finger of God has touched his brain. They literally open the top of his head. That's all tentacles and stuff. I don't know what that was about. And then this literal finger comes down and touches his brain. And he says it's the finger of God. Rain Wilson. If there was ever a role destined for him, he was perfect for this. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. The thing that made me laugh the most is the sheer brutality. Yes, it is absolutely brutal and unrelenting. I think one of the major crimes is cutting in line at the movies, at the at the film, at the, yeah. the theatre. Mm-hmm. In retaliation for that, you get smashed in the head with a pipe wrench. And I don't mean you get knocked out. I mean there is blood pouring out the front of your head. Yeah. He's got a great catchphrase there as well. Shut up, crime. Which is <laughs> ridiculous and perfect. So, yeah, they they have tried to tie this into Brightburn a little bit, didn't they? They appeared at the end in the sequence with Michael Rooker. They were going to do a Brightburn sequel, so I don't know whether they're going to sort of like have a... How can it work? ...gallery of... Um, heroes. Anti-heroes and heroes and... Because he's... I mean, is he a hero? No, he's... Crimson Bolt. He's a psycho. <laughs> to him, he's a hero. Yeah. To Bolty, for some reason. That was the point where he got really funny for me. Mm-hmm. Because, um... I can't remember her real name. Not the actress, but the, the character. But I'm just going to call her Bolty. Yeah. Because in order to gain research... Mm-hmm. We've been talking about research earlier... Uh, so this this guy obviously doing his research goes to a comic book store starts talking to someone who works there and she figures out he's the Crimson Bolts mm-hmm. and offers to become his sidekick and I thought at this point this is going to be the point where she's going to see him do something awful and she's going to get him help no she elevates yeah. it she's much worse <laughs> yeah and that is so fun like she's, she wants to stab people and like it's Brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the that's the thing that made me laugh the most because I th- I thought I'm pretty sure I know where this narrative arc is going to yeah. go. No, no, not at all. Because most people think like like Batman's a nut job. What you're talking yeah. about is nice. Like mm-hmm. it's that kind of thing. Yeah, you're right. I guess in the way that Brightburn was, what if Superman was evil? This is what if Bruce Wayne was dirt poor? Yeah, essentially. Because because Batman's not sane. No, uh, and certainly neither is the Crimson Bolt. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess he can in- indulge his madness with his millions and... And everyone thinks it's fine. Gadgets, yeah. But this guy, he's just, like you said, he's got like a, a wrench. <laughs> yeah. When he first, quote-unquote, stops a crime, yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Because how's he going to do... Like, maybe you're clipping the... Knit. Nope, straight in the head. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a sequence at the end um, that involves gunplay. And if you've ever seen the 66 Batman series, where every time someone got hit, it was thwack, mm-hmm. bang, and it would pop up on the screen. They did that after people got shot, and that is hilarious. Yeah, it's interesting all these um, these filmmakers, indie filmmakers, going on and just sort of like being handed big properties. Yeah. So he literally went from Super to Guardians of the Galaxy. Blimey, that's a leap. I mean, he started off with Lloyd Kaufman's Troma. Lloyd Kaufman's in this. Yes. And I think he only did Slither before that, and then Super, and then here you go, here's the, here's the keys to... In all fairness, Guardians. it's the keys to Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. which at the time, nobody's going to believe... Well, looking back, nobody will believe it. But at the time, I was like, well, that's it. Marvel have run out of characters, because there is no way they're going to get a talking raccoon and a tree over. Nevertheless, 
he went from a two and a half million dollar budget for Super to a hundred and seventy million dollar. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> but I suppose if you look at it, they're kind of the sacrificial lamb. Well, we tried it, but yeah. this. If it works, then you're made. If it doesn't work, then... It seems to be their their model. They find indie filmmakers, like um, Spider-Man director, what's his name? John Watts. The only feature he'd done before Homecoming was this low-budget film cop car. See, to me, that's more, that's more crazy than Gun, because Spider-Man's bloody Spider-Man. Yeah. It's this weird gamble that they take on these indie filmmakers, and I'm sure the Captain Marvel directors are... From yeah, the indie world. Freshly, yeah. Of course, Taika Waititi. Who now won't leave Marvel amazing, alone. Amazing Taika Waititi. None of them have had any kind of prior studio experience. But I suppose what that means is, this is ridiculous, but let's say they hired Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Right? If you suddenly go, we had to fire Spiel- we had to fire Spielberg, that's big news. If they had to fire some guy that you've never heard of... I guess the thing that connects them all is all, yeah. of, all of those films, uh, Super, Cop Car... Uh, all of Ty- Taika Waititi's films they're all character studies Yeah, and it, I think it's quite well known that the credited directors yeah. just direct the, the dialogue scenes the, the action sequences are done by a completely other department that they probably never even talk yeah, to you or, don't need to so I wonder if they're desperate to sort of get some, some character interactions into those films so who knows who, people making indie films today making Marvel films tomorrow so anyway I feel like we've talked too much about so it's just to me it's a really good enjoyable sit back and watch brutal film there's not much to say about it other than that yeah it's you can't really dissect the characters because they are so simple you can't really talk about the plot because it's a very simple plot but it's just it's well made it's dark it's funny it's very funny the character the performances are great it's well written well directed and that seems like a bit of a cop out of a kind of a review but that's the that's it. That's the truth, really. So, Kahuna Burgers? I say four. Yeah, I'm gonna go with a five because I just I love this film. Yeah. My only, my only thing stopping me from getting it up to a five is I did feel uncomfortable at places. I was just like, I shouldn't be laughing at this. This guy's obviously like, you know, he needs to help. Yeah. <laughs> well, got news for you. If you're looking forward to Almost Enemy, then. Um, Which made me laugh. Expect, expect Which at times I felt bad about. It's <laughs> every scene to be like. <laughs> now we're going back in time, way back to the. The late 80s, early 90s. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie from 1990. What did you just call it? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's not what it's called in this country, mate. It is now. It is now, <laughs> yeah. We're suddenly we're suddenly allowed to think ninjas are, you know, alright. Apparently they were too dangerous back in 1990. In the early 90s in England, it's quite a famous bit of trivia. They were not called Ninja Turtles, they were Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Yes, this was indeed an independent film. The original... 1990 Turtles movie directed by Steve Barron and based on the court comic strip by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird which also spawned the insanely popular cartoon and toy line never seen it um, sure <laughs> um, 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles features state of the art animatronic puppets courtesy of Jim Henson's workshop and was edited in part by Tarantino's editor Sally Menke. Despite the success of the TV show and toy line, due to the complete box office failure of the Masters of the Universe film just a few years before, no major distributor or studio wanted anything to do with the film. It was eventually picked up and distributed by New Line, who, while they're box office titans now, at the time they were a very, very small concern. The film was made for a mere $13 million and went on to gross over 200 million worldwide, making it the most successful independent film of all time. A title it managed to hold on to for almost 15 years, only beaten by 
I were everybody's favourite. Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I couldn't, I couldn't think of the name of it. <laughs> Which, I, was like, um, I was like, hang on, it's the one with Christ. <laughs> I actually thought it's the one with Christ. <laughs> the Jesus movie. And that grossed an insane 600 million. Anyway, so this is this is a film from our childhood. We grew up on the turtles. I guess we'll we'll put our nostalgia cards on the table. Okay, I'll put my nostalgia card. Right, I hated the film. Okay, you can leave now. <laughs> I've always loved this film. No, I hated it when it was because it wasn't the cartoon, which is what I wanted. But you already had the cartoon. Yeah, but I wanted the cartoon on the big screen, man. No, I thought that I always loved this movie. I always thought it was great, um, and it is to me. It's one of those films that's kind of much the same way as Ghostbusters kind of has grown with the audience yeah because it is a darker take on the story you know it is a film that you can enjoy yeah now um so that being said i actually i like the film like on on subsequent on subsequent watchings Mm -hmm. because i got older i read the original turtles comics not the archie versions based (laughs) based on the cartoon uh and looking at it from that you're like this is really cool mm-hmm. um, the story of this film is based much more closely on the original comic yeah and that's one of the things that I think allows it to last the test of time a bit better because it there's more reality to it it's grounded more in reality than the cartoon is whereas with the cartoon everything's outlandish and crazy yeah there's only one outlandish aspect of the film and that's that these five mutants the four turtles and Splinter exist <laughs> exist within this fairly grounded yeah. gritty new york reality with the crime wave going on so i think that helps massively maintaining that it's a watchable yeah it's, it's enduring film it's a really good film the only problem i have with it is the elements it takes from the animated series mm-hmm. so what didn't you like um, I mean, they took the bandanas which is a good thing to do because if because all, it makes them identifiable if they're all red yeah i th- it's, it's kind of stuff they didn't take from the cartoon that I think they could have done. Donatello has no personality in that film. I think that's my main problem with it, to be mm-hmm. honest, is like Michelangelo has a bit of personality. Yeah. Raphael and Leonardo, obviously, mm-hmm. every movie they've ever made since has portrayed yeah. that relationship mm-hmm. the same as this movie. But Donatello's literally just like, oh yeah, yeah, cool. It's like, give him the personality he had in the cartoon if you're not going to give him anything. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of um, Donatello, he was voiced by Corey Feldman. Really? Yes. You didn't know that? No. Wow, okay. And apparently he claims that he was only paid $1,500. He said that the producers told him... Lowballed him. Yeah. Um, that it wouldn't be very successful. But, um... Well, there you go. Like he said the Im- Masters of the Universe was a bomb, but yeah. then again it was made by Canon, so... I can't imagine that um, Corey Feldman spent more than an afternoon in a sound booth recording his lines. No, true. Performances. The guys in those costumes, how did half the stuff they yeah. did in those costumes is insane. The the weight of those costumes. That's what I mean. Insane. Because of that, the simple stuff isn't simple. And it took what like three or four people to can separately to control the animatronics of the head, and yeah. so they've got to be so that's like five people who've got to be working in sync with each other for yeah. one performance. It's Jim Henson's last project, isn't it? As well. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't too happy about it. He thought it was too violent. But he did it as a favour to Steve Barron, who had done the pilot for Storyteller. The Storyteller. And the, the supporting cast I really like in this film as well. Judith Hogue. That's April O'Neil, yeah. I, April O'Neil, yeah. She's great. I mean, yeah. At the minute, there's like loads of talk about having needing strong female characters in movies and stuff. But, but 
to me this incarnation of April was just a complete badass. She was great. It's really yeah. feisty. And it's a sh- like apparently she was a complete bitch. <laughs> which is why she's not in the other two movies. Which is a shame because the the subsequent April is a much watered down character, very affable, laughing along at all the antics. So that's a shame. And I love um Elias Cotillas who plays Casey Jones. Yeah. It's I'm surprised he never kind of broke out further from, from that. Yeah. From that or I've only ever seen him in supporting roles in bad studio movies or in indie films. So yeah, like normally when you've got human characters acting alongside, you know, you, with the Turtles movie, all you want to see is the Turtles. But I think their incarnation of April and Casey Jones is really good and they work very well alongside the characters. Yeah. Unlike the sequels with April, certainly unlike the remakes, the Michael Bay versions where the first film was essentially an April O'Neil movie that featured the Turtles yeah. rather than a Turtle movie that had April O'Neil as a supporting character just didn't work for me those but yeah there's just so many good things about this film another thing i love about this film is the soundtrack and the, the song i had the album yeah same and this was in it's the not time. as good as the album for the second one because that had to be like ice on right it. you can leave again <laughs> <laughs> so but no i love that turtle power song by partners in crime mm. the only problem with that song is it claims that raf's the leader you know yeah. And that caused, I remember, a lot of schoolyard arguments about that. People saying, in the movies, Raph's the, the leader, and in the cartoon, it's Leo. And no, he literally calls him his, the a- glorious leader. Absolutely, in, but in this, is in, this is in a time when you couldn't instantly disprove anybody. Yep. Look, on Google it says... <laughs> and another thing like I was thinking about... That must suck. You can't have an argument about anything these days. I know, I know. This happened to me several times, and I don't know if uh, you ever came across this. But one of the first big kind of adventure movies that was out when we were growing up was Ghostbusters 2. And at the time, the cartoon was out and was massively popular. Yeah. Again, because this is like a different time when you can't just instantly access anything. Sort of Ghostbusters 1 from 1984 was sort of a... I wouldn't say a lost movie, but you but it, it wasn't around. It was like being a Star Wars fan. Yeah. I only ever saw that if it happened to be on at yeah. Christmas. Mm-hmm. So it's like that kind of thing. With Ghostbusters 1, you, your movie got released once yeah, on bit, one format, and that was it. And I don't think people were aware of it. So the cartoon was crazy popular, and the, a film comes out called Ghostbusters 2. When Turtles movie came out, the cartoon was crazy popular, and loads of people were referring to the movie as Turtles 2. <laughs> Did you ever... I never had that. I had that with several people. And I can only assume it's because, like, you know, 1984's... Ghostbusters was just like this movie that like you said you you yeah. either saw it on TV or you didn't I mean, people just weren't aware of it but yeah I remember loads of people calling Weird the movie to people, people not being uh, it's crazy being... the other thing I really like about this movie is the the film stock that they used which looks cheap but it works so well yeah it because it, the film is gritty and yeah. dark and everything mm-hmm. like that it really does give it that kind of and it just looks great. The quality of the film just works so well with it. Unlike, again, referencing the second film, that looks like a cartoon. It's very bright, bright. and poppy. I think that was a lot of that was done in response to kids that were like, where's Rocksteady and Bebop and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. Of which, I, like I said, I was one. Now yeah. looking back, I'm like, oh, that was the worst. I should have... <laughs> From my point of view, there's nothing bad about this movie. And, uh, I, I don't know, think there's anything bad about it I now. know there's a lot of... Um, nostalgia based on that but anyway I think it's cool that one of the the very first movies that I loved 
was an indie film. Oh, I see, I see. Um, get the two Kahuna burgers. I'd have to give this five. L- looking yeah. like having seen it again for this, like it's a pretty damn good adaptation. Mm-hmm. It's the best one, I By think. Far. For me, five out of five, no doubt about it. I'd also give this five. <clears throat> anyway, one final tidbit. Like we mentioned before, they had a lot of trouble getting this film made. Couldn't find a distributor for it because of their problems with um, Master of the Universe film. Nobody wanted to make it anyway. But this leads us nicely into our next film that we're going to talk about. In the 80s, the first pitch that Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird had for a, a film treatment was from a notorious B-movie producer. And the idea that he had was that the Turtles, who definitely weren't going to be teenagers, would be played by four comedians who were popular at the time. Gallagher, <laughs> Sam Kinison, Bobcat Goldthwait, and Billy Crystal. And the idea is that they would have had the actors dressed in shells and then painted their arms and legs green. That can't be real. It's, that's uh, hang that's on. got to be internet, internet legend. No, no, no. When you hear who the producer is, you might rethink. <laughs> it was Roger Corman. Oh, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> Gallagher's the guy with the melons, right? Yeah. Oh, God. So, okay, who do you think there would have been? Gallagher would have been Bobcat Goldthwait, Ralph? Yeah. Paul Michael, Michelangelo? I, I can't even... I, Billy Crystal would have had to have been Leo. Because he was the most well-known. His tone is more deadpan. I suppose, yeah. Oh, God. So, anyway... That, that sounds incredible. That was Roger Corman's idea for the film that he didn't get to make but he did get to make this next film Fantastic Four from 1994 was it? Somewhere around there So the story goes that German production company Constantine Films purchased a 10 year option for the Fantastic Four in the mid 1980s but around the early 90s they hadn't put anything into production and failed to secure any funding uh, because they wanted to retain the movie rights they needed to put a film into production before the 10-year period would expire. They engaged the services of B-movie maestro Roger Corman, who, I guess he was still reeling from the fact that he couldn't make his Turtles movie, um, gave him a couple of million dollars and told him to make the movie. Stories vary, and some say it was never intended to be released. Others say that it was intended for a small theatrical run, but when Marvel saw the film, they bought the film, all its negatives, and the prints, and destroyed them. The end result was that it was never officially released, and for years it was only available in bootleg video at comic conventions, and eventually, and inevitably, ended up online for all the world to see. Now, I know nothing about the Fantastic Four, I'll be honest. I'm bothered with any the studio versions, I don't care about them whatsoever. How faithful is this Roger Corman film, which I've watched. This is, <laughs> this is the only Fantastic Four film that I've seen. How uh, faithful is it to... To the characters. The source material, yeah. It's the most faithful it's one. the most faithful. And for that reason alone, it's my favourite Fantastic Four movie. Okay. To me, there's no redeemable features about this whatsoever. So this will be an interesting conversation. So for, okay, so is it in the... It's... Don't get me wrong. It's crap. <laughs> it's terrible. Everything about it is bad. I'm very forgiving of a bad movie, but there's nothing... But they get the origin right. They mm. get the relationship between the characters right. Okay. They, okay. they get. Wait, Hold on. Pause. 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 Okay. The relationships between the characters, from the comics, then does Reed Richards fall in love with a young Sue Sue Storm? Because in the movie, oh yeah, there's that thing in the orphanage, isn't there? Like she's a little girl and she's got a yeah, crush that's, on him. Sorry, that's not there. 
<laughs> okay, you're... And I'm like, what the hell is this? No, it? no, she, uh, they're already in a relationship at the start of the comics. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but... He didn't cradle snatch you. <laughs> no, no, that is, the weird, that is the weird... There, there is some weird stuff, but compared to the to the big budget, hey, should have been, been able to do this really easily. I think my main thing is the, the big budget ones get Doctor Doom wrong. Yeah. And Doctor Doom's awesome. So I think maybe I'm being too harsh on the big budget ones because this is... It's bad. It's so I, every time I think boring. about it, I think it was made in the 70s, like early 70s, yeah. uh, because the film stock alone looks like... Mm. Um, but it does It does feel, despite the crap costumes, and it feels more like the Fantastic Four than the Fox versions. Crazy. Which is bizarre, because it shouldn't. I think with the with this version of Fantastic Four, it's like, at least you got that bit, and you got that bit, and you didn't kind of... At so least, it's faithful. Yeah, faithful. It, it's faithful-ish. Okay. Okay, so if nothing else, it's faithful. It's crap, don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, I've literally got nothing good to say about this. Topic. It's just, really bad. I'm, I can't... See, I reckon that more people have probably seen this movie than they would have done out of pure curiosity value. It's the same as the Holiday Special. Because if the holiday special hadn't been like only shown once and never again, yeah. people wouldn't care. Yeah, because I've only seen this movie at pure curiosity value because I love Roger Corman, his crazy filmmaking. It's his pioneering spirit of like <laughs> I can get this done <laughs> in five hundred quid. Yeah, two two days, five hundred quid. Yeah, cool. I'll just reuse the sets and yeah, I I'll think make, that's make, genius. We'll make three films this week, but yeah, that's the only reason I've, I've watched it. If it was like widely available. We wouldn't even be talking about it. Yeah, I I didn't know this existed for ages until I bought the the holiday special. Oh really? And I bought off this book, and the guy was like, "Have you seen the the nineties Fantastic Four? And I'm like, I've seen the the cartoon because, mm-hmm. and he's like, "No, no, the the live action movie they made." I was like, "No." He's like, "Hang on." He he pulled out his VCR and he had this little he had a, he had a tape deck yeah. showing clips of the holiday special, and he was like, "Hold on." Put it on. He's like fast forwarded to like a bit, and just went. This is what it looks like, and I was like, I have to see this film. It's amazing that they exists in the first place. Mm-hmm. But it's an it's an amazing movie. I actually think the thing. <clears throat> it's an amazingly bad movie. I actually think that the thing looks all right for what it is. Yeah, and apparently it had a three million dollar budget, and I think two point five million was spent on the, the costume. Yeah, I mean, it, don't get me wrong. It doesn't look good. <laughs> But it looks alright actually. Okay, let's wrap this one up because I'm. I'm <laughs> yeah, every time okay. I, try, I try and think about, oh yeah, that thing happened, that bit. Maybe it's not my favourite, but the other two are terrible as well. The other three are terrible. Okay, Kahuna Burgers. Oh, five. Easily five. Just, just for that, you have to see it. Nah, I'm gonna give it half. No, I'm I... gonna give it. I'm gonna give it half eaten Kahuna Burger in a mouldy bun. But it's so funny. It it's so bad. Oh, it's not. It's just boring, 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 boring. So before we jump onto uh, the shorts, there was a couple of movies that didn't have time to recommend to you, Paul. But yeah. I hope that maybe you will check them out in the future. So yeah, there's only so many films that we can um, cover in the podcast, and there yeah. was there was a couple that I kind of I wish that we would have had time to cover and wish that I'd recommended to you. How many comic books? Or graphic novels? Do you reckon I own? Um, two. Correct. Yes. One of those is a Walking Dead compendium, and the other one is the Ghost World graphic novel. Okay. By Daniel Klaus, which I bought because when I first watched 
the movie I just adored it and I wanted to see how different it was so yeah I kind of do wish that I recommended this year because I rewatched it recently and um, it's awesome Ghost World Ghost World from 2001 Daniel Klaus worked on the script with Terry Zwigoff who'd previously only done um, a documentary on Crumb you know the illustrator yeah so yeah Ghost World has got Flora Birch in it who's sort of a a relic of the, the late 90s, early 2000s. I don't know what she ups up to these days. Uh, but it also stars Scarlett Johansson, who is firmly rooted in comic book um, movie genre. She's she's well in there. Uh, it's also got Steve Buscemi, who I'm surprised has never been in a superhero movie or comic book. He will be. He's got to be a bad guy at some point, surely. How he hasn't played the Joker with that face, <laughs> I never understand. I love this film. It's one of those films that's that is genuinely quirky it's not a film where you think oh, oh. I hate the word quirky because the moment you see it in the TV guys you know it's a, it's a byword for shit yeah but this film definitely is not shit and it's not quirky or zany for the sake of it it's genuinely weird I'll give it a watch cause I think you should think you're you not should. the first person to have said I should watch it yeah like I said I, I, I'm regretful that that isn't one of the ones that we're talking about another film that again I just kind of thought about this one too late really I saw this not too long ago. It's called One and Two from 2015. It's got Keenan Shipka in it from Mad Men. You ever watched Mad Men? I have watched Mad Men, but um, an indie darling, Timothy Chalamet or Timothee Chalamet. But yeah, it's uh, I really like it. It's a nice little indie film, and it follows a family who live uh, a rural lifestyle. They're almost kind of Amish, right. like they're completely cut off from the outside world by their father. There's no real indication at the start of the film when it's set because they've got like gas lamps and the farm tools they use are relics of. Uh, yeah, of a bygone age. Of a bygone that's the word. So, Kiernan Shipka and Timothy Chalamet, they play uh, the two teenage children and they've got the ability to rematerialize, sort of transport. Do they swap positions? Oh, no, they? no, no. So, they, they can do it independently. You only ever see them do it the most rematerialize five to ten meters away from where they originally were okay but it's a power that they they use very playfully like when they go swimming in the lake they rematerialize ten meters in the air so they can bomb back into that's the lake cool. that's kind of what i do so like i said they're all very kind of playful with what their ability is but the problem is their ability is kind of linked to seizures that the mom's having oh. so the dad's very dead against them using their powers and that Kind of everything transpires from that point because their their playfulness is putting their their mum at risk. Okay, that's that's interesting. And it's got a great kind of melding of uh, indie film and superhero ideas and ideals. You know, it's much more insular than a a Marvel movie. It's not about whether you use your your powers for good or evil. It's purely about the consequences of using your power or gift, uh, despite knowing the dangers. And I guess, in a sense, as their whole world is their mom and dad, yeah, it, it is like, it is it like does, saving it, their world. Yeah, it is like a, a Marvel a movie, absolutely. I mean, that sounds really interesting because there are, as you're fond of telling me, there are like 500 save the world mm-hmm. movies. <laughs> I'm fond of telling. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, to to be honest, that kind of thing is what they should explore in like the Superman movies. Mm-hmm. Is like. I have a responsibility because I can do this stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I really liked about it is it legitimately feels like this movie could fit into the X-Men franchise. You know, it, it does feel like um, an X-Men spin-off, like a, an art house X-Men spin-off yeah. in a way, just with no 
actual X-Men. But yeah, so it feels like a, an unofficial, non-canon X-Men movie. So I would recommend that to you. Anyway, so those are two that didn't get a chance to recommend to you. You've looked at loads this time. So I'm trying to find... I was desperate to find like a superhero movie or a comic book movie that's sort of like been overlooked or like a low budget film. Cause they we, just don't happen. <laughs> we've had I mean, a lot of fun with the dramas and the comedies and we found some really good undiscovered gems and stuff. And I was hoping that we could find a comic book movie to be like, hey, this is low budget, but it's really cool. I've watched... Um, you've watched, watched the, you've, you've had some experiences from the sound of it. Instead of it being a worthless endeavour... And rather than forcing you to watch these bad movies, that, well, I'll, I'll just way. gloss over them a little bit. I'll, I'll talk about them. At the start of this process, you give me a list of films, yeah? Yeah. Twice, you have then gone, oh, strike this off the list, don't don't put yourself <laughs> through it. So I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so what, what were they? Pizza Man. Good Lord. So <laughs> Pizza Man, I think it's from 2011, uh, somehow had a $3 million budget, but I can't imagine what they spent it on. They made the Fantastic Four on $3 yeah, million. Dollars. But they spent $2.5 million of it on that suit. <laughs> so unless $2.5 million went on Frankie Muniz's suit, which I highly doubt, <laughs> unless that was his salary. So anyway, it stars Frankie Muniz as the titular pizza man. Dallas Page, who you says a wrestler. Yeah. He's... He, his character's name is The Big Cheese. And then uh, Shelley Long, who literally couldn't be asked to be there she plays the mom uh, there's cameos from Stanley Adam West and everybody's favourite comic book hero Roddy Piper two, like I said to you, two wrestlers in one movie <laughs> can't not be gold um, so it's, it's about Frankie Muniz's pizza delivery boy, he was played way too seriously and way too earnestly by Frankie Muniz, he was is really all in on this when everybody else that is kind of like that sounds like such a shame he was, he was really putting his heart and soul into this uh, everyone else either kind of got the tongue in cheek approach or like it said with Shelley Long just checked out before she even got there she couldn't to be, be fair honest. Dallas Page and Roddy Piper are probably trying their best it's just their best is pro wrestler <laughs> level so this pizza delivery boy who works at the family um, pizzeria with his mum He's so he knows a, a scientist. I think it might be his teacher at the university he's studying at. And this scientist he's studying at university? Yeah. This scientist <laughs> no, this scientist is trying to create a for some reason a tomato that can never be bruised or be damaged in transit. So Didn't Lisa Simpson do that. I don't know. So they've got this thing and they they test it and they throw it at the wall and it smashes on the wall and they're oh no and then the next day they come in and the, the tomatoes come back together and so they've finally cracked so the solution the, so the next step <clears throat> is human testing obviously so well this is the thing so somehow the bad guys find out about the, the tomato and um, are you alright Paul? <laughs> <laughs> sorry every word of this just sounds amazing well, okay maybe this should have been on the recommended <laughs> pile after all so the, the bad guys find out about this tomato and Frankie Muniz is delivering a pizza, coincidentally, at the scientist's lab as the bad guys turn up to grab the tomato. The bad guys burst in and start shooting up the place. Frankie Muniz gets shot and, shot and the scientist gets shot. And the scientist is carrying around the tomato and he falls here. He says, I can't remember, Frankie Muniz, he says, Frankie, you, you need to eat this tomato. And he's like, why? And he goes, you, you know, you need to, to save yourself, you need to eat this tomato. 
So they don't share it, this message to <laughs> So Frankie Muniz eats this um, tomato and he gets pushed off a roof but he survives and it's because he had this like regenerating tomato so he's now got regenerating properties and oh, I'm not going to be much use at this stop laughing the pizzeria where he works the mascot of the, the pizza parlor is um, a superhero okay called pizza man and so poor old Frankie has to dress up as pizza man and promote the, the restaurant so he's already got this costume and now he's got the superpowers and now the the bad guys want the they want his DNA so they can replicate it and yeah, it's just like it sounds like it was written in about 20 minutes on the back of a pizza napkin somewhere after somebody saw a pizzeria with a superhero <laughs> mascot did you ever see any of those Roger Corman keep mentioning Roger Corman this episode he features a lot those Roger Corman produced kids movies from the 90s Possibly, but so, you'd have to remind me. So essentially, I saw a lot of rubbish in the nineties. Yeah, so they were they were straight to video. You'd pick them up from the video shop, and they'd obviously have intriguing artwork. But the films would be absolute crap, and the stories would always be the same. There'd be a kid with a single parent. So check, yes, we've got Frankie Muse with a single parent, and there'd always be like a scientist. So if if the, one of the parents wasn't a scientist, they'd know a scientist. So yes, Frankie Muse knows a scientist, and then there'd be this object of desire in the whole thing. In this case, it's the tomato. In other films, it'd be like an, an animal that's escaped with super qualities or whatever. It'd be like a be like a, a, a scientific formula or something. And then there'd be the bad guys. There'd be the head honcho, and then there'd be the bumbling underlings. And they'd all be after the whatever it was, object of desire, the, the pet or the formula or the the ancient artifact that the relative had sent from ancient Egypt or whatever that's got superpowers. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, essentially the, the rest of the story writes itself. But the most kind of like weird and disturbing thing about those Roger Corman things was he employed softcore porn TNA directors and yeah. <laughs> to make them. Because like he'd, he'd do those films as well and he'd have like the set so and the crews left over. And then they'd make uh, kids movies on the same set. The sets. man knows how to make his money. Like, uh, how to stretch his budget. So, th- so they'd look like... TNA movie, but the aesthetic of it would be like a TNA film. Just the, the production design, the lighting, because it'd be the same cinematographers who used to doing that, and the same directors. Everything about this Pizza Man is exactly like that. He looks like a. Should I tell you what film that this reminds from yeah. that setup? Home Alone Three. That's way too high a budget. I think you need oh, yeah, to be. <laughs> but it's the same plot. It's oh, there's yeah. something hidden in this oh, thing. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ticks all those boxes. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, so like I said, there's there's a bunch of cameos. So how on earth did they get these cameos? I don't know how they tricked them into it. Unless this is where all the money went. Unless they give like Stanley a million dollars or something. Stanley apparently just liked cameoing in movies. He just the cameos are just like the worst type of cameos. There's nothing clever or funny about them. Frankie Muniz delivers a pizza to Stanley completely randomly, and he's on screen for about twenty seconds, and he pretty much says, "Oh." Hello, true believer. That's a good impression of Stanley, uh, actually. He, he, something else off, and then obviously, as he he lets um, lets him go, he goes, Excelsior. 
And just like Amazing. the next person he delivers to is Adam West, and Adam West starts spouting a bunch of Batman stuff and starts talking about being the mayor of this fair city, which is obviously a reference to Family Guy. And it's just like they've got the idea of cameos completely backwards. It's like you know they take they're a, not supposed to be the main plot. The meta called... aspect of it just gone crazy with it. Instead of like being like a, a a line that they slip in that's like sly and funny, it's just like okay, so you're Batman. Let's think of every. Every line you're going to say is going to have some Batman reference. And then when Roddy Piper turns up, which is the bizarrest one, he comes in randomly to the pizza parlour. At least Roddy Piper's got like a little bit of a background in film. I mean, n- not many of them were good movies, but like They Live is pretty good. Well, Welcome to Frogtown, not so much. <laughs> he comes in and he starts demanding a pizza and Frank Muse no, you know, stop getting so rowdy. Oh, God. Stop getting so ready. We, we've stopped serving pizzas, and then he's he starts taking the display pizzas and eating them and spitting them at Frankie Muniz. <laughs> and there's other cameos as well. And it's just like I said, they've got complete the wrong idea of what a cameo should be. So this was never shown on the Disney Channel. <laughs> it sounds awful, but in a good way. It's but... one of the. It's like the room in the sense that within it, there's some unbelievably bad scenes that are good because they're so bad. bad. But a film as a whole is just unwatchable. Yeah. I don't know why clips of this movie haven't surfaced on YouTube. I don't know why this hasn't become the next room. Uh, but may- maybe we'll <laughs> maybe start it here. Maybe, maybe we'll do a screening and um, pizza man. instead of throwing spoons at the screen, we'll throw pizza or whatever. <laughs> we'll see. So anyway, when I read the synopsis for that one, I thought this has got to be a good tongue-in-cheek comedy film. And now. Yeah. It sounds like it. It sounds like it should be, but it's it's not acted that way. It's not directed that way. Nobody's kind of got the tone right. Right. It could have been a good satire or pastiche. That's a shame. In any way. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't stop laughing. No, you're regenerating tomato is the MacGuffin of this film. Another one. Now, this is one that I've wanted to watch for a while. Called Unlikely Hero in the UK. It's called Paper Man Everywhere Else. And it's called what everywhere else? Paper Man. Paper Man. Yeah. So this was only given a release in the UK after the success of Deadpool. Really? Um, yeah. So like judging from the DVD cover, you would never know that Jeff Daniels was the main character in this film. No. So it's got... But Ryan I would be able to tell that it's five stars hilarious. <laughs> from Letterboxd. <laughs> so yeah, it's got Ryan Reynolds slapped all over the cover... Uh, his name's... Ryan Reynolds Pete. is the cover. There's nothing else on it. <laughs> Emma Stone. Other than the clip art explosion behind it. Jeff Daniels is just about managed to squeeze his name on the front. And despite being the main character, I'd be surprised if Ryan Reynolds spent more than two days on set of this movie. That's that's bad. I always hate it when things do that. So, I mean, to be fair, that that's not the filmmaker's fault. Of course. But nevertheless, this is... I, it's, I don't, it's, it's false advertising. I don't like to rag on a... A film, especially an indie film, but I hate these kind of indie films. There's just too many of them, and they're all the same. And they're all about a guy going through a midlife crisis. More often than not, they're a writer. And yes, in this case, Jeff Daniels is a writer, and he's in some strange remote place, and he meets a quirky girl, and the girl's way too young for him. You know, of course, by the end of it, only he discovers that everything he needed was always right with him all along. It's just, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's so derivative. I think when they, these people had written the, the first draft of the script, I think they realised how derivative it was, or someone had told them. And instead of going back and changing any kind of story details or anything, they just kind of like peppered some quirky, quote-unquote quirky 
inconsequential stuff over the top of it. So oh, sounds like thanks for saving me from this one as well. So his imaginary friend is a superhero played by Ryan Reynolds and there's a scene where for some reason he doesn't have a car and the only reason he can get into town is this little bike. So there's hundreds of shots of him riding this little kid's bike into town and it's just like it's just like there's all these visual Quote, inconsequential gags yeah. and stuff. But none of it kind of elevates it out of being, like I said, a very derivative midlife crisis indie movie. It looks like it should be an indie superhero film, but it isn't. If you don't want to watch it, I believe at the moment it is on Amazon Prime, you should avoid it. <laughs> Block it, delete it. <laughs> I might as well do Kahuna Burgers for this. For Pizza Man, you know what, I'm going to give it two. Just because it's, it's, it's wrong in all kinds of ways, but people are trying. People are trying really hard in it. Unlike the hero, I'm afraid I'm going to give it one. Still better than the half you gave Fantastic Four. <laughs> okay, fine, I'll give it half. Oh, I'll put it on a par with Fantastic Four. I do not recommend that. Now, the other movie that I checked out, like I said, I was desperate to find something different, and I found this um, film called No Ordinary Hero. This is also on Prime, and it's about a deaf superhero, kind of. The actual story, there's sort of parallel storylines going on, the one involves this deaf actor who plays this superhero, who's a deaf superhero. So now, you've got hearing impaired man. <laughs> okay, so guess what his name is? I was hoping it was hearing impaired man. No, it's not hearing impaired man. Deaf man. No. Um, Mr. Deaf. <laughs> Don't know. Because... He's called Super Deafy. He's yeah. called what? Super Deafy. No, he's not. What's he really called? He's called Super Deafy. That's so bad. This is essentially a, a film made by deaf people. Okay. For And I like that kind of thing. And I like the idea behind it that it's sort of trying to be more inclusive and trying to bridge gaps. The cast is evenly balanced. So there's one half of the film is a, like a family drama. There's a, a young boy whose favourite superhero is this TV super deafy character. Okay. And then you've got the behind the scenes of Super Deafy, the show, with this actor. So they're running parallel, these two storylines. Okay. And they don't meet until the end. The, okay, I was going to ask you if they ever met. Yeah, that's just sounded bizarre. Again, this isn't quite a superhero movie because it's about a man playing a superhero rather than him being an actual superhero. As much as I said, you know, it's admirable to have a film like this, and I do like these kind of films. Like, I understand, like, if you're deaf, it must be really difficult and very frustrating living in a hearing person's world. In real life, the guy who plays Super Deafy, he also wrote... Uh, co-wrote the film so one of the scenes in the film he goes to an audition for another acting role and he walks in and um, everybody there is deaf but um, they're all different ages and different sexes different races okay and so he's acting very confused why why am i here what are the more roles or is it just the one deaf role and it's but no it's just the, the one deaf role we're just you know the producers aren't 100 sure the way they want to go with this character okay then for some reason marley matlin turns up to this audition to audition for this same role and then she goes ballistic she starts shouting at everyone she starts going i've warned you about this before i've told you you can't just write deaf person in the script they need to elaborate on their yeah. the character and who they are and everything and look, there's a couple of points in this movie like i said i appreciate it must be really difficult to be deaf in a hearing person's world great deaf director deaf writers deaf producers the two main characters are deaf but i, I hate it when things like this slip in and there's a bit of a chip on their shoulder about stuff. Because to me, I mean, 
at the minute, people are always complaining about roles being a white person of a certain age, of a, with a certain look and whatever. Yeah. And so in this instance, it's a very broad character uh, outline that they've got and they, they want a deaf actor to play it and then they'll make the character fit to the actor. Which to me is like, isn't that what every actor wants? wants? And you they... tailored this role for me. <laughs> Good. Yeah, exactly. But And that becomes a, a problem within this film because they're upset that they're sort of going, oh, it's a deaf character and we just want a deaf actor. And I'm just thinking, is that a problem? So there's a few moments, like I said, where the sort of this chip on the shoulder angle comes into play. But apart from that, it's, it's not a bad film, but it isn't a superhero film. So yeah, I, I admire the fact that um, this this cast and crew of deaf people made this talking film basically yeah. um quite a feat quite admirable and it's a well-made film by all accounts it's just like i said it doesn't fit the superhero doesn't mold. Fit the theme. again if i'm going to throw um kahuna burgers at it i'd probably say it's a three i guess it's more of a family film as well does it become overly preachy the, like i said it has those chip on the shoulder moments but it doesn't become too overly preachy cool but yeah i'd recommend it if you wanted to watch a a family drama written and directed and produced by talented deaf filmmakers rather than cool. a superhero movie. So anyway, so that was the end of my endeavour into desperately trying to find a low-budget comic book or superhero movie that's sort of gone under the radar. Now, if you know of one, if you've made one, if you've seen one, recommend it. Like I said, despite my best efforts, I haven't found something that fits the bill, but I'm sure there must be something. There's got to be something, but it's a difficult genre to do on a budget, though. It is. Unless you're going to make it a character, like a, a, a character piece. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but a lot of people, when they hear superhero movie, want one thing. Mm -hmm. I'm more into the characters rather than the situations. Mm -hmm. So a movie like that would be awesome. I've seen enough films where the world's about to end and only so-and-so can save it. They're all like that, aren't they? Don't start. <laughs> okay. Those are all the features we want to cover. Just got a few shorts to round off this comic book superhero inspired podcast. The first is a short film from 2013 called I Am Super, written and directed by Brandon Egan. This is one of the films I'm proud to say that I backed when it was crowdfunding. For all the people who helped back Almost Enemy, yes, I do pay it forward. But anyway, I Am Super, a 40 minute short film made for just $6,000, I think. And it follows Peter, who, after finding out that he's terminally ill, decides to do something more with his life and make his remaining time on Earth count for something more by trying to become a superhero. So, Paul, what did you think? I thought it was really well made. Mm -hmm. Like, Yes, you sit there and say, it's a short film. It's 40 minutes long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For $6,000, you've got to admire the ambition of this I'll, film. I'm more than admire it. I want to emulate it. I mean, it's, like, it's ridiculous. It's <laughs> it's pretty much half a feature film. Yeah. I always thought it was a shame that they didn't kind of take what they had with this 40-minute short and kind of shop it around a bit, get a bit more money, and expand it into a, a fuller film. Because they could have taken what they'd already got because it's really well shot really well yeah. acted really well scripted really well directed and the first feature film that Scorsese released was called I think it had a bunch of different names but I think it's most commonly known as um, Who's That Knocking or something Who's That Knocking on My Door 
essentially that started out as a short film and then um, that did really well at festivals and someone gave him some money to do a bit more and so a couple of years later he made it a bit longer I think he got it up to about 60 minutes and then he shocked it around a bit more and then someone gave him some more money and then he added a bit more to it and he ended up with a feature film off the back of it which um, I think is a pretty good way to it's not bad do. keeping that cast together yeah. would be a nightmare but certainly certainly but he managed to do it I mean that was with Harvey Keitel but uh, yeah so I mean he's kind of halfway there um, I, mean, I mean this is it's a big achievement mm-hmm I like the angle of the terminally ill person mm-hmm. wanting to do more with their life. Yeah, what's left of their life. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a, a more dramatic version of Kick-Ass. Yeah, it's, like, there's definitely no there's no jokes in it, really, that I can point out. There's a bit of humour. Oh, there's, um, there's some humour, but there's no straight out. No, sure. I think the ending packs quite a bit of a punch. Certainly, yeah. I mean, he certainly, you know, he does make a difference to people in that film. There's mm-hmm. certainly some situations that would not turn out very well should we say just mm-hmm. I'm not spoiling it yeah because you should definitely go out your way and, and watch this yeah fortunately it's free on Vimeo so because Vimeo's search engine is crap and if you put in I am super you'll come up with every title with super in it you won't find it so type in I am super and Brandon Agan A-G-A-N and it'll pop up straight away and enjoy like I said admire the ambition of the film the scale of the film and the fact that it's a you know a different take a more dramatic take on the idea of a, the normal person Becoming. wanting to be a, a superhero and do something different with their life and it, i guess when you're in that situation if you know you've got a limited time on earth when you think you've got all the time in the world you kind of drag your feet don't you and everyone does and so this sort of gives him the inspiration to kick his ass into gear yeah those that's those scenes in the uh, in the office mm-hmm. oh yeah they really kit home for me there is i mean it's real yeah that's a that's a person mm-hmm. of experience because i backed the film i i guess i've got the perk with the the blu-ray they really went all out with the features on this they've got like a 40 minute making of documentary on there really nice in-depth stuff set up that might be available as well to view online if it is check it out it's a nice look at you making don't really it. see that kind of thing with the, the short movies no, no. we did this <clears throat> you get the end product and the big hurrah yeah. but you don't really get the blood sweat and tears as it were absolutely so certainly both both are worth checking out in conjunction with each other not much to say other than highly recommended uh kahuna burgers i'll give it four four um, and a half great i'd definitely give it a five out of five for um i'm just being too stingy unless you know you know <laughs> the fantastic four from 1994 whatever it was that's true did you actually give that one a five i gave it five <coughs> but i probably shouldn't shameful. have done i just want to wind you up shameful Okay, but yeah, five from me, four and a half for you. And the final film we're going to talk about is a short film from 2010 called The Legacy by Mike Doto. It's a 12-minute film that's got a staggering 1.2 million views on YouTube, so you may well have seen it before. And it's about a young boy who believes that his father, who used to be an actor, is an actual superhero. Um, So what did you think on this one? I really liked it. I've got a special place in my heart for the Chris Reeve Superman mm-hmm. movies. Which essentially this was ripping off. Yeah. So uh, paying homage to set it mm-hmm. up a bit better than what I just did. Um well let's put it this way. It it starts off and the father is watching himself on television. The scene he is watching is very reminiscent of a Chris Reeve Superman mm-hmm. scene. It's kind of it's even like <coughs> looks it looks the same. It looks that kind of age and everything as well. And it kind of won me over from there, really, yeah. because of 
I don't really want because it's only twelve minutes. I could easily go through the plot, but I don't <laughs> yeah. really want to do that. So, well, basically, the the father is Chris Reeves. Yeah, he used to play not Superman, Crypto Man, Crypto or Man, or something yeah. like that. Because I remember thinking <clears throat> that's a bit close to Kryptonite. <laughs> but fair enough. Uh, plays Crypto Man, um, and his son is somehow unaware that his father used to be an actor in these films. And then once he stumbles across some magazines or something with his father on it, dressed They're, as a superhero, yeah. it's basically the son trying to discover if the father is a real superhero and whether he's inherited any kind of superpowers yeah this is a a big budget short film i think i don't know what the budget was but you can tell what they didn't scrimp on it if the cinematography the locations the set design the acting's good uh the story's simple but you kind of look forward to it Mm -hmm. the one thing that i like about it is, is the dialogue's pretty sparse and there's a point where he's looking through his father's wardrobe looking for the costume. Yeah. And that's all scored with music to fit everything that's going on. It reminded me of The Snowman, the Raymond Briggs animation, yeah. and the way that that's pretty much a silent film, but all the emotional beats are hit with the, the music. And I felt like that was very similar in this film. It wasn't just a score uh, layered on for effect or just to be like, okay, happy moment, sad moment, dramatic yeah. moment. It pretty much rode all the highs and lows or whatever, all the emotions. Very Williams-esque. Yeah, I like that. A lot of the um, the film was carried without dialogue. Yeah. It was a very, it's a very me, visual film. A lot of a lot of films, I think, they they love they loved the sound of their own voice, especially shorts. Yeah. When people talk about good writing, more often than not, they're talking about the dialogue. They're yeah. not talking about the structure or the plot or the, the story, the characters, everything that makes up what the writing is. Despite there being a lack of dialogue, it's still a well-written short. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, Kahuna Burgers. Same again, four and a half. I'm going to give it three and a half to four. Yeah, I think I think my connection to the Chris Reeves Superman yeah. movies, which you aren't such a, no. such a big fan of, <laughs> if a fan at all, is because it really is a love letter to those movies. Mm-hmm. You can see it. So as a, as a piece of filmmaking, I think it's great. So that brings us to the end of our low-budget, independent, comic book, superhero-themed podcast. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. Just search Indie Filmopolis. And they're all great. Oh, thank you very much. Especially the ones with you and I guess. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but thank you for saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On Facebook and Instagram, if you search Indie Filmopolis... Uh, and the film is with a PH, so I N D I E P H I L M O P O L I S. On Twitter, because the handle Indie Filmopolis is too long, we have to settle for a Filmopolis. If we pique your interest with Own West Enemy, we're on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Own West Enemy Movie. Again, we've got a website, ownwestenemymovie.com. If you want to find myself, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Filmmaker. Or Philip Yu, uh, filmmaker P H I L M, maybe an underscore in some of them, maybe not, and then M A K E R, and Philip Yu with one L, probably be able to find me. Uh, Paul, how can we find you, or do you want to be found? I'm on Twitter at P M Barrow. I think that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. Awesome. Anyway, so thanks for joining us, Paul. It's been a pleasure. As always. Thanks for your insights, and I hope you check out uh, one and two in Ghost World. I will do. Awesome. Right, so we're off. 
I'm off to my Fortress of Solitude to continue writing. Okay, well in that case I better come with you and stand guard outside and fight off the onslaught of polar bears that are undoubtedly coming your way. That is a really obscure reference. <laughs>